Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. A holiday miracle. The government funding bill is barreling through the Senate. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we attempt to look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. A lot to cover on today's episode ahead of the holidays. Government funding was set to expire Friday at midnight. Lawmakers released a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill in the wee hours of Tuesday morning. And later that very day, it got 70, 70 votes to move forward in the Senate. We'll dig into a bit on that big number, surprisingly big. Perhaps the House uh, unintentionally had something to do with it. Uh, speaking of the House, we learned that one of its new members fabricated his entire biography, putting the leadership into a bit of an awkward spot, how to handle that. Uh, and of course, we are inching closer to Kevin McCarthy's big day, January 3rd, when the vote for speaker takes place. So we will have a little something special today. We are actually going to go deep into the question of what happens if no one gets 218 votes or a simple majority on the first ballot? It hasn't happened in 100 years, and we thought people might be interested to know what could happen if that moment does come. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I think a lot of folks, including myself, are curious about the floor rules and the options available if uh, Kevin McCarthy comes up short of the votes on the floor. But before we get to any of that, a few things that I want to talk about first. Um, this letter from Rep. Chip Roy and about 12 co-signers to Senate Republicans, uh, where they vowed to block any legislative priorities of senators who vote for the omnibus, um, they were sure to single out Leader McConnell as being included in this list. Um, so essentially, thir these 13 House members are taking issue with the omnibus. Specifically, they highlighted their opposition to the spending levels, Biden overreach, they flagged immigration concerns, um, what they called the blank check being issued for aid in Ukraine. Um, so they're basically just sending this letter, kind of railing on the omnibus and all the provisions within it. And then they're issuing a threat saying, any Senate Republicans who vote for this omnibus, they are, if they have any bills that they're going to try to move to the House, um, whether that be a suspension vote, a rule vote, this group of 13 is going to oppose that legislation. Um, and further, they're going to whip opposition uh, in their conference for any of these pieces of legislation. So, um, you know, some of these suspension votes that they specifically mention, as you know, are like the kind of non-controversial pieces of legislation. Um, so, you know, they're just kind of threatening to continue to gum up the works. Again, this is, I think, important to point out, it's 13 people. Um, and in, in my view, I think this is a pretty quick way to annoy your house colleagues. Um, and well, something- I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, to take, so like this made a lot of news this week. And I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm struggling to make any sense of what it means. Why would this- why would this annoy their own House colleagues? I think most of the people that I'm talking to feel like, um, and most people, I should say, House Republican um, staffers and, um, you know, their bosses are just kind of rolling their eyes at this. I mean, I think while you're right, it's, it is getting a lot of news. I think it's just kind of 
an annoyance and a nuisance of a tactic. I think, um, you know, obviously this eats up floor time um, in the next Congress. So I think they're, you know, probably not looking forward to that. Like, right, these 13 members are essentially doubling down to say, we're going to make this place as dysfunctional as possible. Um, we're going to any Senate Republican piece of legislation, which in my view, like, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of substantive um, pieces of legislation coming over to the House from the Senate, um, because the Senate's obviously going to be controlled by Democrats. But I think it's just kind of, you know, all these, you know, these guys are like back at it again, you know, gumming up the works. Yeah. I mean, that's so kind of my sense. I, I do. I do get the sense that this probably led to such a high number of Republicans voting to advance the omnibus. Clearly, Senate Republicans quite annoyed, uh, to use your word, with with the House. And there was uh, an incredible quote from from one senator basically saying they're basically proving why we have to do this right now because they're not capable of governing. So we're going to take care of, of funding the government for a little bit. I will push back a little. So let me just say, I think this is one of those threats that we will forget ever happened a month from now. But if the idea is they're going to block any bill that these, you know, however many teens number of, of senators uh, support, uh, yes, a Democratic Senate is probably not going to be moving a lot of Tom Cotton bills uh, through the body. But what if that like extends to, I don't know, national defense authorization next year or a farm bill or government funding that some of these senators support? Are they basically saying you know, this isn't just these 13? I think an important part of this, Kevin McCarthy tweeted uh, in support of this me measure uh, of this letter and said, uh, any bill that comes over from these people is dead on arrival, which, you know, of course, some of this is Kevin McCarthy kind of needing to shore up uh chip roy and, and and some of these folks but you know uh it's not to say that anything that comes from the senate is can just be ignored some of this stuff is actually kind of must pass so if we are to take it on its face as a serious effort could be somewhat problematic i tend to kind of uh dismiss that a little bit though as something we're going to just kind of forget and um but probably speaks to what you are getting at more than anything highly dysfunctional relationship between the house and the senate coming coming at us quickly. I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said um, that this is something that people are going to forget in a couple of months uh, in the new Congress. And I think if McCarthy is successful, um, you know, I'll be curious to see if anybody like dredges up this old tweet and, and holds him to it. Um, but I want to discuss uh, also this New York Times reporting on Rep-Elect George Santos from New York. Um, you kind of touched on this earlier, Brendan, but he essentially fabricated his resume. It's coming out that he may have misled uh, voters, particularly about his college graduation, his career on Wall Street, um, you know, omitted details about, you know, some of his business dealings and financial disclosure forms. Um, I, for one, am really just blown away that Democrats like failed to sort of dredge up this opposition. Let's, um, not, now let's not forget the weirdest one. He claimed that four of his own employees were killed at the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Like, where do you, where do you even come up with that? And isn't that relatively easy to kind of trace and check out when I mean, we know the people who were killed that day? Yeah. I, it's just really twisted. Um, you would think that it's something that would be pretty straightforward to track down. Um, 
you know, I, I saw something, the DTRIP kind of did a little bit of damage control. It seemed like they were saying like, opposition research can be hard. You know, we did put out a little bit of this, um, but you know, I, I looked at their like treasure trove that they put publicly on their site about um, Repelec Santos. And it's just like not, it's barely scratching the surface. It's, you know, really missing like, hey, we called up Goldman Sachs and it turns out you were never an employee there. You know, it, it's like pretty straightforward stuff that you would think, you know, in addition to the individuals who, you know, he's claiming worked for him that were killed, the Pulse nightclub, um, it, it just seems like really basic stuff that should be in your opposition book, like on day one, if you're running against this person. Um, so, you know, frankly, I just don't really understand how um, nobody did the due diligence here. But, you know, obviously people are saying there should be an ethics investigation. Some people are in the New York delegation are saying that the FBI should investigate this. Um, there are calls for McCarthy to delay swearing him in. Um, which I think we'll both agree is a pretty unlikely path given McCarthy's tight speaker race. So I guess, Brennan, like what tools are available to lawmakers to address this? And then, you know, what, what do you think they might actually do in response to this? So this is the ultimate, like, welcome to being speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Like the really crappy situations you get handed sometimes uh, in leadership. But I will say, I don't think I've quite ever seen one exactly like this. So, you know, first things first, like, does he get sworn in? Yeah, I, I think he does. I don't know what sort of recourse there is to 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 block his, you know, he was elected. And whether he was elected under false pretenses, um, I just don't know of a, a real procedure to uh, try to invalidate that. So I do think he will get sworn in the question then is is what happens both in terms of uh investigation but also the decision the leadership has to make and uh one of the unfortunate things that has to happen every once in a while is you kind of have to help a member see that uh they don't have a lot of good options and perhaps the best one is for them to leave the house um given the margins i you know i struggle to see McCarthy being able or willing to run this guy out of the house into a, you know, it's not, let's not ignore this. It's a seat that Demo Republicans took back from Democrats. And if this went to a special election, very likely could go back to Democrats. Um, you hate to say that that's going to weigh into the calculus and something like this, but that's going to weigh into the calculus uh, on something like this. So I, I think they will uh, let him come in and then the question becomes does he get sort of treated like a normal member does he get committee assignments um i think there's going to be a house ethics investigation and my suspicion is that mccarthy will put him on a committee or two probably a relatively um uh a committee that not a lot of folks want to be on and basically punt until the investigations are done and say we're going to seat him um they're doing their investigations and if they find something, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it then and kind of just use that as, I don't know, ex an excuse to let him, to let him carry on. That's my guess. I haven't, I haven't asked them about what their plans are, but that's my, my guess. The interesting thing here is um, you know, a lot of conversation about how this is going to go to the ethics committee. Uh, it was until very recently um, thought that, uh, ethics doesn't have any jurisdiction on things you did before you were a member of the House. 
so obviously campaigning on a bunch of lies is, you know, as a new member is something that, you know, you were doing before you were in the house. Um, but there was actually very recently sort of a change to that precedent. Um, it was just a few years ago, there was a Nevada congressman, new member, uh, who was uh, accused of harassing one of his campaign aides and House Ethics Committee actually took that up and looked into what he did uh, as as a candidate. So I guess there's, that that is now in play. But then there's also the question of his, his financial disclosure that he's filed with the House. And I think people would also say that that gives some jurisdiction to ethics to look into this. This is another one of the wild parts of this story. Um, you know, this person ran once before and, and filed the financial disclosure and I think showed that he had no uh, accounts or assets uh, above the category of $5,000. Uh, and then in his most recent one, just two years later, he's worth like $11 million. Went from having nothing to $11 million in two years uh, and nobody bothered to ask questions about that. So a uh, big headache for Kevin McCarthy, huge distraction. My guess is that he doesn't let it get in the way of him uh, losing a seat, but um, I will be very interested to see how he handles it. Yeah, and not to put you on the spot, Brendan, but he did release a statement um, that kind of say, you know, saying that he was being the New York Times was attacking him, but it, you know, also at the same time didn't really push back or deny any of these allegations that came to light in the New York Times um, article about him and his and digging into his resume. So I, I guess I'm wondering, like, do you see any kind of, you know, calm solution to this? Like, is there a way that he can, you know, if you were advising this person, I mean, it seems like I don't really see a way to, you know, move move out of the situation that he's in, you know, and I don't think that issuing, you know, statements which are not denying any of these accusations is, is helpful in any way at this point. Look, I, I, I would struggle to... Uh put myself in the, in that position of, of I think you have to figure out the facts whether you're uh advising him from a communications perspective or if you're Kevin McCarthy I mean I think you need to pull someone in like this and say okay like I understand you are uh not responding to the media but I need to know exactly what happened here I need to know what else could potentially I mean that's always the big question of these things it's like well, what yeah. else what else is out there um, and that's usually how these things go when a member uh, comes to the their own decision that they should leave uh, the house. As you have a conversation, like explain to me the situation, explain to me what else is potentially out there that I don't know about, and then you explain to this person what's likely about to happen to them and how costly it could be to them, um, and how they have no good, real good options uh, where to go from here. And they usually come to the right the right decision um i this person is it seems anyway this is all alleged of course uh this person seems to be uh quite disconnected from reality so who knows how how they would respond uh to such a thing but um you know i theoretically or you know you would say uh i want to have i want this to be looked into because i didn't do anything wrong um who knows if that's true um, but so I imagine this is all just going to kind of end up in uh, in some type of investigation, uh, whether that's legal. I'm not the guy to ask about that. I don't know the the, the laws around that. Um, but certainly seems like the House Ethics Committee is going to going to look into it, and that's probably where this will end up stuck for uh, at least a, a number of months until we come to some kind of resolution. 
I want to move us back to the possibility of McCarthy's speaker vote failing in the new year, because um, I know this is kind of uncharted territory. And, you know, McCarthy has also kind of indicated that he's going to be there until the bitter end, um, you know, kind of whatever the outcome is. But before we hear from you, Brendan, about what is in the realm of the possible for if this vote fails, um, can, can you just explain for listeners a little bit about the difference between you know, if if House members are going to have a typical vote um, on a piece of legislation like the NDAA recently or the omnibus, how is that different than a speaker vote? Um, and also there's this, so you can vote, you know, yay, nay, or present, which is essentially abstaining from voting if you're voting on a piece of legislation, but you can also vote present um, when you're going through the speaker vote. So does that have any bearing on uh, McCarthy's, you know, ultimate 218 count? Just walk us through that process. Sure. So I've obviously, we'll get to what happens if someone, Kevin McCarthy, doesn't get uh, a majority on the first ballot. But yeah, I think I think helpful to kind of just walk through the basic structure of what what normally happens. On that, I have plenty of experience. And a lot of us, I think, have all seen these votes and kind of understand generally how they go. But there's some important sort of details to appreciate because I think people will be watching this uh, a little more closely than usual, perhaps. Um, and then we'll get into you know what happens um, if it if it fails. And uh, I'm not necessarily uh, a parliamentarian myself. Um, but I've been uh, doing the research, talking to my sources, and, and have a relatively good sense of, of what that looks like. But let's back up to sort of traditional House speaker vote. Um, vote for the speaker is the first, basically the first thing that happens in a new Congress. Um, each Every two years, constitutionally, a, a new Congress begins in the House. And the House is a body that ends at the end of one Congress and starts a starts a new one, um, which is a little different than the Senate, which they, they refer to as a, a continuous body. Um, so on January third, which is the constitutional date when a new Congress starts, the House will convene at noon. They'll have a quorum call, uh, bring all the members to the floor. There'll be a prayer, a prayer, and a pledge. But the first order of business will be a vote on the Speaker. And really important to stress this: it's the first thing you do. Nothing else can really happen until this is resolved. Uh, this You do this not only before you pass any sort of rules for the House, you actually do this before you even swear in the members of Congress. Um, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Um, but uh, all the members who are voting for the Speaker haven't even been sworn in yet because the first order of business, and this goes back to the Constitution because the Speaker of the House is a constitutional role, it's just this, uh, it has the, the the privilege, the precedence to be the first thing they do. So uh, that's the first order of business. And it will bring everybody to the House floor. And it is a long process. Um, but the way it works is uh, each conference chair or uh, caucus chair, so the Republican conference chair, Elise Stefanik, uh, and then the Dem caucus chair will each get up and nominate their party's nominee for speaker. So Elise Stefanik will will get up and say, uh, I nominate Kevin McCarthy. Pete Aguilar will get up and say, I nominate uh, Hakeem Jeffries. At that point, 
other people can make nominations for other candidates for speaker. Typically, they haven't done that. And even when people voted for someone other than the two main party uh, choices, uh, they didn't actually make a nominating speech. So maybe this time is different. Maybe somebody gets up and actually nominates Andy Biggs or whoever to be uh, a candidate as well. But once those nominations are done, you just roll right into a vote. And uh, it is a long process because you have to go one by one. This is the, you, people have, have seen this. It's when uh, they start going down the alphabet and they call each person's name and that person shouts out or stands up and shouts out who they're voting for. Uh, it's 435 of these folks. So you can imagine that takes a really long time and you just have to have a simple majority. And to your question, um, there is the the issue of what calculates out to be a majority. If people vote present, what does that mean? The way this has been interpreted is uh, it is members present and voting. And the and voting is important. It means that you have to be voting for a person. If you just vote present, you are not counted as part of the total. So anybody who votes present, anybody who's absent, lowers the total number of votes that you need to get. So if there were uh, you know, 10 people either present or absent, uh, that, would, that would lower the threshold by five. Um, so a simple majority there gets it. And that's what we typically have happen. And there have been some close calls, uh, particularly with uh, John Boehner, but he always managed to get that majority. And then at that point, uh, he comes to the floor, make, makes a speech, swears in other members, they do a rules package, and you're off and running. Um, so that is how it normally works. So what happens if Elise Stefanik nominates Kevin McCarthy, he fails to secure 218, um, they presumably go to a second ballot, and no one budges. Um, what options are available? You know, is that something that continues on for eternity, um, or, or is there a set limit number of votes that they can take after you know three failures? There's no limit. I mean, they could vote as many times as is needed, and they have. Uh, I believe the most is they once voted 133 times uh, for speaker. Um, I don't think that's imagine the time that that would take. <laughs> it took months. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I will say before we get into this, Kevin McCarthy should do everything humanly possible to avoid a failed vote. Not humanly possible. I mean, I think there are some things that he should not give up. Um, but all to say, this is a big deal if it doesn't, uh, he doesn't get the majority uh, of votes on the floor. Um, again, we haven't had this happen in a hundred years and it's only happened once since the civil war so um you know there's a it feels like the sort of game plan is let's just go to the floor let's be strong we don't get there we'll come back and, and get them the second time around and like that may be the best strategy like but if it's if there is any way to make some type of fig leaf offer some type of accommodation to bring some of these folks along and avoid this somewhat uh unknown uh chaos to the floor uh after a failed vote i think he should do it but um you know to your question no they can go as many times 
as is needed. So let's let's talk about it. There are only a handful of things that can happen at this point. And uh, as I as I said, this is the first thing they do. There actually are no House rules at this point because they have not adopted them. And the last Congress ended and the new Congress is starting and they don't have rules yet. So what does that mean? Um, they don't operate based on the House rules. They operate based on precedent. What is How has this worked in the past? Um, and there's not a lot of precedent. Like I said, it's only happened once in the last 100 years. Um so the beginning process is, you know, you, you, you kind of operate under under how it's gone. The the caucus or conference chairs making their nomination speeches. If it fails, I mean, the 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 most basic thing that can happen is they just revote, you just go right back at it, um, and that is certainly one of the things that can happen. There are only a couple other procedural things that can happen, um, and I want to stress this. These members are not members yet. They can't just go off and do members of Congress things. They can't just sort of put off the speaker thing and do other stuff. They can't have committees. They can't can't do anything. Got to resolve this. Um, so one thing that can happen is they can start renominating people and they can give nominating speeches. Um, they will go back to the floor and who wants to nominate who? I imagine. Uh, you know, in a, in a Stefanik or whoever would, would nominate Kevin McCarthy again, and they would nominate Akeem Jeffries again. But maybe in this period, uh, they do start seeing nominating speeches from other people. Um, this is a, a process thing, but it could also be an opportunity for McCarthy in terms of if this vote fails on the floor and they need to start making some deals, if they need to start bringing people into the cloakroom and figuring something out, maybe this process can be used to uh buy some time have somebody make some speeches stretch out the process because they are otherwise sort of forced to go right back in to voting again and if you're kevin mccarthy you kind of need something to change between the first and the second vote right so, so that is yeah so i'm just imagining like complete chaos um and you know, given that there are no rules and this, you know, is not something where we have a lot of past precedent to look at. I mean, this is like a very basic question, but I mean, who's controlling floor time? Like who's, you know, running operations and, you know, is there, are there advisors? I mean, how, if you're going to make a nominating speech, for example, like who's recognizing you? Yeah. Very, very good question. Uh, pretty basic. Yes. Uh, the clerk of the house, the clerk of the house is the presiding officer over, over this, um, and it will be the the sort of the carryover uh, current clerk under the Pelosi speakership, I expect, because then they don't uh, nominate and approve new uh, officers of the House uh, until until after this process. So it will be the clerk of, of the House who I'm sure is getting very smart on all of this stuff uh, right now herself um, and figuring out the process. So that is who will be recognizing people. To be sure, the House parliamentarian will be right there alongside or whispering in the ear. Um, here's how you handle this. Here's what happens next. Here's what you do. Um, but it will be the clerk. And to the extent that it exists, it will be the parliamentarian advising her on the, the precedent uh, and, and how to handle these things. So the other thing that can happen is... Someone could make a motion to 
change the way the process works. Basically, uh, a, a resolution um, that would uh, either lower the threshold needed for speaker, uh, change the way that um, the vote happens. Um, this is something that they had to do long ago was actually after a bunch of failed votes, they passed a resolution to uh, uh, make it a plurality instead of a, a majority. Now, I don't think we should spend a whole lot of time worrying about something like this happening because this is something that would need 218 votes to happen. Uh, you would need, um, if there are enough people willing to block Kevin McCarthy from getting speaker, it's hard for me to see them going along with a procedural change that will just make it easier for him to, to yeah. do that. Yeah, I think that sounds like, you know, just something that would be really hard for me to envision happening. Um, but I want to move us back because I'm curious. So, okay, so days and days are going by, you know, they're voting, they're, you know, you know, the hours are just slipping by, people are getting restless, you know, maybe, you know, they need to go into the cloakroom and have these conversations. Maybe they want to have an all conference meeting. Um, what, I guess, what's the process and how would this play out if, um, you know, all the Republican conference just needs to kind of, you know, maybe they're going to go try to come up with another person to nominate. Maybe they just need some time to you know, corral these five people. I mean, what's the process by which they can, you know, stop the voting and, you know, really spend some time trying to um, figure out a, a path that will actually bring them forward on a speaker? Yeah. Uh, so thankfully, they don't just need to vote until they drop. And um, that would be really extra painful. There is a way that they can sort of pause the, the proceedings. Uh, it is a more difficult way than normally and normally in the house uh it is allowed for the speaker to just recess the house subject to the call of the chair basically time out we'll come back when i say we're ready to come back uh can't do that without without rules in place without a speaker so what you have to do to pause the proceedings after a vote has has failed is actually adjourn um which is a is something that has weight in that it's something that the house has to agree to do as a body uh meaning they have to vote on that they have to vote whether to adjourn and so they could vote someone could make a motion to adjourn to a time certain they could you know maybe the vote fails once and they want mccarthy wants to do an adjournment uh until six o'clock so they've got enough time to uh you know go have a conference meeting like you said talk it out maybe work out some type of uh, uh, some type of deal, or they could uh, adjourn to a, a particular day, uh, and that could be tomorrow at noon. And so they don't have to go forever. Uh, they can pause. They can make a, a motion to uh, to adjourn. So who, I guess, who's going to be making this motion? So that's another good question. Um, this is something I think we should really keep uh, a close eye on. As you said, like this could be chaos and there is going to be a lot of members who maybe don't know what to do, how it works. Um, but there's also probably gonna be a lot of members who want to be recognized on the floor. It's only one person can, can speak at a time. So it's a good question of who is recognized by the clerk to make a motion or even make a nominating speech. Um, 
And from having conversations and kind of looking into how this has gone in the past, I think the expectation is the expectation is that the first person who will be recognized after a vote fails will be Elise Stefanik. That is because she will have been the person who nominated Kevin. She is the considered the party chair. Um, and we think the clerk would look to her to make to, for, to at least be recognized first for, for whatever she wants to do. So whether she wants to call for the vote again, whether she wants to make another nominating speech, whether for Kevin or I don't imagine someone else, but um, nominate whoever she wants. Um, or she could be the person who makes a motion to adjourn. So I think she, you know, I, I imagine that the McCarthy folks are understanding um, that she has that role, but uh, I guess that's an open question. Yeah, it seems like to me, you know, if it's an Elise Stefanik or whoever is playing that role, it's going to be really important that, you know, they are in lockstep with, McCarthy and they're going to be, you know, wielding a lot of power in terms of who they're, you know, allowing to give these nominate nominating speeches. And um, that'll just be interesting to see how it plays out and how well, tightly those two are coordinating. Absolutely. Uh, something I think really important to keep an eye on. To be clear, anybody can give a nominating speech and anybody can nominate anybody. So at the end of nomination, even on the first ballot, um, uh, again, Elise will, will nominate Kevin, um, they'll nominate Jeffries, and then the clerk will say, are there any other nominations? And usually there are no other nominations, but at that point, anybody could do it. Um, we could get into a scenario where if it does fail on the first ballot and she renominates Kevin, that you start then seeing other people say, you know, I nominate Jim Jordan or I nominate Louis Gilmert or whoever it may be um, on the House floor. And who knows what those speeches turn into? Usually the nominating speeches are pretty, they're not much of a speech. It's kind of just a, a direct thing, but they can nominate anybody. But another important point, just to make sure people understand, just because someone is a nominee and their re name is read as, as someone who's been nominated, that has no real bearing on who you have to vote for. Just because only Kevin McCarthy and Akeem Jeffries get nominated, members can still vote for whoever they want. Um, and uh you like like similarly you can you can nominate whoever you want and that person you know doesn't, isn't even bound to to vote for that person so um the nominees uh the nomination process is a little more um pro forma than it is anything real meaningful in terms of who you're locked in to vote with i i, I think another like interesting question though is let's say this does drag on for a long time let's say Kevin McCarthy at some point, I don't think this is going to happen to be clear, but let's just say, you know, for this exercise that he takes his name out and says, I'm, I'm no longer in the running for it. Or let's just say the conference like turns on and says, we, we, we need somebody else. It, I, I'm curious to, to see like, does the conference actually come back together in private and revote to nominate someone? Do they have another you know, Kevin McCarthy won this in the conference in a secret ballot, uh, whatever it was over a month ago now. Um, does he, do they come back together and do that again? Or does all of this just get hashed out on the floor in real time and people just start voting for, for different folks? So um, pretty theoretically chaotic situation. Again, I think it's important to appreciate this is like 
what we think is gonna happen um if we get there but this again hasn't happened in in a really long time so just to reiterate uh, the few options that exist when if uh i should say if uh, someone doesn't get a majority of the votes uh on that house floor they can just go right back and vote again the house can entertain nominating speeches either as a way you know let's say let's say some people are voting for steve scalise and scalise says okay i appreciate that i'm going to now stand and say um, I nominate Kevin. I want all of you people who voted for me to vote for Kevin next. I don't know if that's going to sway anybody, but that is an option that exists for. It's also uh, kind of a way to, um, you know, use floor time and maybe allow people to have some of these conversations, right, Brendan? Yeah, and maybe it's it's not exactly what you what, uh, the definition of filibuster, but a way to actually like kill some time on the floor, let people talk, because there might need to be some some wheeling and dealing. Um, so they can revote, they can make nominating speeches. Someone could make a motion to change the process, maybe lower the threshold, um, or even just the process by which they they nominate speaker. I don't think we should count on that happening. Or they can make a motion to adjourn. I do want to stress: you need two hundred eighteen votes to adjourn. Do you think uh, Democrats come over and help if they're getting tired and decide they they too want to adjourn? That's exactly where it's going. I don't know. I, I, look. I think if in, let's say if, if Boehner ended up coming up short in 2013, 2015, which he didn't, but if he came up short, I think there was enough goodwill for John Boehner that Democrats, they wouldn't have voted for him to like get him there, but they probably would have gone along with like if Boehner said, I need to adjourn, we need to like come back. They probably would have helped him out. Ah, things have broken down so much. seems like Hakeem Jeffries really hates Kevin McCarthy. I don't know that they would do anything to help him. So then you might end up in a situation where Republicans want to adjourn either for the day or maybe just for a few hours to have a conference meeting. And you then have to still get the agreement of those, however many, five or so Republicans who aren't going along with anything to agree to adjourn. Um, and if Which they, don't they agree, may be very unlikely to do. They may not want to do that. So maybe they can't even adjourn uh, if they want to. I mean, eventually they'll have to adjourn. Like it will become very obvious that you kind of have to adjourn. Um, but maybe in the first instance, they'll say, "Nope, I want to. Sh I want to show you that we're not backing down. Let's vote again. I'm going to vote the exact same way." Like that's very much a, a scenario that is that is possible. Um, so, revote, nominating speeches, a resolution to change the process, or an adjournment is kind of it. Otherwise, you just stick at it and keep going until somebody gets uh, a majority. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that that will happen. Yeah, I, I don't think any of this will happen, but I think we should be very prepared. Yeah. I mean, I think we said this at the top, but this is all pretty uncharted territory. Um, and I think, you know, to the extent that we, we can, you know, this is just kind of a primer on the, on the different options that we see as as possible but again you know i think there's always the room for a you know a surprise or something that we're not anticipating uh in the new year yeah one other just thing I'll, I'll throw out there for people to keep an eye on um the day before the first day of the congress republicans typically gather for a conference meeting and that is where they approve the final text of their rules package 
So uh, as I said, at this point, there are no rules. Right after a speaker vote, they will uh, approve a set of rules for which the House to operate under. Most of those are just kind of rules that carry on from year to year, but you have to vote on them um, together uh, as a, you have to get a majority to pass the House. And so there's always a conference meeting the night before where the rules package is debated and passed and basically everybody agrees this is what they'll vote for for the rules the next day. Um, this to me, I don't know, I don't know, but this just feels like where this is all going to come to a head. And if there is some type of uh, compromise, some give from Kevin McCarthy, we've talked previously on this podcast about the motion to vacate, if he has to tweak how that works. Uh, they're obviously calling for going back to the way that it was before, where any member could move to kick out the speaker. Um, just keep an eye on that conference meeting as potentially his way to avoid any of this stuff we just talked about. I was just going to ask you about that, Brendan. I, I was going to ask you, do you think if uh, if you're McCarthy and you're looking at this uh, rules package, do you think to avoid all of this chaos on the floor, do you think that you give on the motion to vacate if that gets you these five votes and secures um, you know, that you're not going to have to go through what sounds like an incredibly messy you know, weeks on the floor right out of the gate. This is something very highly talked about uh, right now in Republican circles. I, the word is the McCarthy folks are insistent that he, he's not going to give on motion to vacate, not going to go back to the way that it was, just recognizing that eh, it would be just a miserable existence um, having this hanging over you at all times and any one of these folks can trigger a vote to kick you out at any time they want. Um, and it may just not be worth having the job under those circumstances. It's just so tough. So the the word is that uh, they won't be giving on that. Does that mean they won't give on anything related to the motion to vacate? I don't know. Um, I, I, I I could see some type of, I, I feel like these folks, if they're going to give in and they've been pretty clear that they are voting no on the first ballot, some of them saying multiple ballots, they'll vote no or vote against him. You kind of have to give them an exit ramp. Um, uh, you know, maybe a fig leaf change where they can say, I wrestled this out of his hands. I got what I wanted and now we can move forward and I don't still don't trust him, but I got something out of it. I feel like it has to give something. Um, mm -hmm. other, otherwise, yeah. the strategy is just like lean on them and just hope they fold. And it's kind of like if it's not the motion to vacate, what is an exit ramp that's, you know, large enough for them to feel like they are getting a win um, in, in, term, in, in order to change their vote? Yeah, it's all about face saving. So we'll see if there's anything that would be face. I'm, and I'm sure there's lots of conversations um sort of flushing out what that could be but i do i will say i don't think anybody should expect any kind of breakthrough on this until january 2nd at the earliest there's just really no reason for anybody to show their cards um if i know anything about the freedom caucus they love to move the goalposts so if you know kevin you know gives in on something they'll t they'll pocket that win and then find something else to complain about for the next 10 days uh so i i i don't there's a lot of you know, theater surrounding all of this right now, but I think it's really going to come to a head uh, on January 2nd. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, um, Brendan, thanks so much for, you know, taking that deep dive and what might possibly happen on January 3rd. Um, and thanks all of you for joining this week's episode of Control. Um, we wish you and your loved ones a very happy holidays. 
and we will be back in the new year to um, share with you uh, what happens and to break it all down with, you know, whether or not McCarthy is ultimately successful in becoming speaker in the next Congress. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. Happy holidays. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.